Is this thing on? I think so. The light's there. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Pat. This is Posh. And this is the Founder Hour podcast. We're glad you're here. We have a big episode coming up, but before we get into it, we just wanted to remind you guys to please subscribe. Leave us a rating. And a review. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook at The Founder Hour. Thank you guys for being here. Spread the word and enjoy the show. What's going on, guys? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And I'm Posh. And we're hanging out today with Nate Checkets. Is that how you pronounce your name? Yeah, you got it. Nate Checkets of Roan, uh, which is a luxury men's sports, uh, sorry, activewear uh, brand um, and one of the one of the largest activewear brands kind of coming up in the space. So excited to sit down with you and learn about your personal story, your business story, and just kind of everything in between. Yeah, so, thanks for thanks, having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, so yeah, we always like to start with like the early stages. So tell us a little bit about um, where you grew up and maybe like what you were like as a kid and what you were into. Yeah, so I grew up in a big family, six kids on the East Coast in Connecticut and, uh, you know, amazing home, great parents. But I was always doing something, you know, chaotic, entrepreneurial. I didn't, I didn't think of it as entrepreneurial at the time. It was just kind of like entertaining ourselves because... I see today now how involved parents are with their kids. And my, my parents were involved, but there was just enough to go around between the six of us. Did you say you were the youngest? Or? No, I was oh. the third. I was a middle child. Oh. So I was like most easily like forgotten. Yeah. Uh, there was, uh, you know, bless my mom's heart, but I'd, like, there'd be, I'd wait for her to pick me up from basketball practice for like two hours sometimes. Jeez. And uh, you know, it's not a rough, rough thing by any stretch, but um, so we were always up to something and like setting up lemonade stands and doing entrepreneurial like activities. We used to, we used to go to the nearest golf course and dive in the lake and fish out the golf balls and sell them back to the golfers. Where did you get that bug from? Like, was it, were your parents entrepreneurs or your older siblings or anything like that? No, I, I don't know. It's like, it was just kind of instinctual. It was just this idea that, wait a minute, I could, you know, we can make some money that I can then go convince my mom to take us to the toy store and buy, you know, candy or toys with. Um, it just seemed kind of to make sense to me. I enjoyed it. I, that's what I got a kick out of. Mm. Did you grow up in a family or had friends that, you know, you looked up to in that? I mean, I'm not talking when you were like four or five years old, but as you kind of grew older, like that became examples to you of entrepreneurs or people that were just doing things that were, you know, beyond the norm. Yeah, well, to call a spade a spade, my dad was a very successful business executive in the world of sports. And um, and so I he's always been my example, kind of my hero. And I, I was just interested in it. I, I think if you ask him more so than my other siblings, I was just like, well, why did you do this? What? I asked nonstop questions all the time. Um, so I think I was born with kind of a natural curiosity that way. And I did. I like... I. I found myself more interested in talking to people like him and and kind of older older successful people than I did hanging out with my friends. I just was always curious why somebody did something, how they were able to accomplish it, uh, and and so I was all my dad would get tired of me. I'd like be somewhere with him and just start asking nonstop questions of his 
friends and peers and he's like all right you need to yeah <laughs> you need to settle what down. Ab- but what about that fascinated you so much like why were you why do you going back i guess if you could look back uh, like why were you so curious and and interested in in those types of people or that type of world i guess yeah i don't know i like i i really don't know i i remember i was traveling with my when i recently got married um, I got married fairly young and still married, happily married with my wife. We've got three kids. We were in London, and I remember seeing Stephen Covey, who's a, you know, the author who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. And I was so like excited, I could barely remember my name. <laughs> and my wife is like, this is so weird. Like, Why is this so interesting for you? And I was like, he wrote one of the pivotal business books of you know, the 21st century, he's just an amazing human. Yeah. And sadly he's since passed, but she's like, you've, you've met plenty of famous people and you never get nervous. And here you are meeting this author, this business author, and you get so excited about yeah. it. I can't explain it. I really don't know. It's just, that's, that's who I was. This is who I've always been. I'm curious, why did your dad get into the business of sports and, you know, what what are the things that he shared with you early on that stuck, whether positive or negative, about the industry? Yeah, well, um, his story is really, really cool. Um, he, you know, grew up in uh, in Utah, um, had desires to get outside of the state. Ended up getting a job straight out of uh, out of school to go work at at Bain. And at the time, Bain wasn't what it is today it but was like the early Mitt Romney days yeah it wasn't Bain Capital didn't even exist yet yeah, it was just yeah, yeah, yeah. the Bain and Company the consulting company yeah. and um and while he was there Bill Bain wanted to buy the Boston Celtics so my dad was one of the only people who played basketball in college and uh and kind of had the same business mind so he gets put on that the, project on the project and his first interview uh is with a the deputy commissioner of the NBA named David Stern. And, uh, and while there, Stern starts asking him, he realizes he's from Utah. And he, you know, he's like, I should introduce you to the Utah Jazz ownership. And the Jazz were $10 million in debt, uh, you know, kind of a misnamed in this state. They, everybody always joked they should have been in New Orleans. Yeah. And, uh, and so he ends up getting hired at age 28 to become the general manager of the Jazz, still to wow. this day, youngest general manager wow. in NBA history. And, um, and so that's the world that we grew up in was this world of sports. He ended up going uh, and working in New York for a long time. And what he would always say is that human capital is the most important capital of all, and um, especially in the world of sports. And he just, he's, you know, he's thankfully still alive, but he has this legacy of just being beloved wherever he was. He took such good care of people. He Mm -hmm. cared about people deeply. He would always encourage us to understand that other people's hopes, dreams, and fears should be as important to us as they are to them. Um, and, uh, and I think that's the thing that's stuck with me the most. I can't think of anything negative that he's taught me other than, you know, whenever I get in an elevator, I start pressing the button repeatedly, which is, I think, a habit I picked up from him. Were those things that he picked up along the way, like throughout his career, or were they things that I guess he was taught by his parents like early on? Um, and, and if it was something that he learned throughout his career, do you know how he, how he picked those things up? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's something that he developed and honed over his career. What I didn't know until after I called him 
and told him that I just saw Stephen Covey is he told me that he was Stephen Covey's teacher's assistant in college, wow, which is uh, pretty amazing. So he yeah. grew up kind of you know studying these these ideas um, about you know kind of character development, um, you know self improvement, and uh, and I think he really puts it into practice. And you know so does my mom. My mom is just an amazing woman, and uh, I think they both grew up in very strong principled uh, homes and. You know, they they really tried to instill in us, uh, even though we grew up in this world of success that they were having. And for him, you know, in the New York media market, a, a great deal of notoriety to be, you know, to be very, um, you know, to be a person first. So so that's, you know, that's really the way that we were raised. Growing up and watching the success, I don't know if it was during the Carl Malone, you know, Stockton. Like yeah, he drafted all these Carl Malone and John Stockton. Yeah, there you go. So you obviously saw all this success that, you know, your dad was having, that the team was having, that he was a part of. Did that put any sort of pressure on you to almost become that successful? Or was it just, you know, that's my dad, like he's doing what he's doing. He's obviously great at it. I want to go kind of carve out my own path. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I definitely felt pressure, but not not by him, but just on myself. You know, kind of. It's weird when you when you realize, all right, at you know, at at twenty eight, that he was running an NBA team, and yeah. by thirty six, he was running NBA International, and then you know, so that has been something that I've learned to you know to better manage in myself because. I think comparison is the thief of joy. Whenever we compare ourselves to to anybody but ourselves, it's a quick path to misery and uh, and anxiety. Um, but he he never put pressure on us that way at all. In fact, not even to work in the world of sports or to do anything um, that way. Uh, and I have three brothers, and I think to varying degrees, all have felt that at points in their life. Um, but maybe me probably more so than than the other three what did you do to really kind of you know get on this path and you know fulfill these pressures that you had on yourself and to you know make something of yourself i mean what are the steps you took did you after high school did you go to college and what did you do after that and what were you studying and what did you want to become yeah so uh well so you know kind of my entrepreneurial journey is when i was in high school i my mom said, this is, you know, part of the way that we grew up. She's like, you know, I know you want to attend these sports camps. You've got to get a summer job and help contribute to the cost of these camps. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I decided to start mowing lawns and like two days in, I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. I just, this doesn't scale. Like I can't mow more lawns, even if I run yeah. faster. Yeah. You race, race against time. Yeah, so then I decided I was going to start a summer camp because I could teach kids how to play sports. So I started printing up these flyers, and I went around to local soccer fields and handing out these flyers saying, I'm going to host a summer camp, and I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout. Like I was putting any credentials on there that I could think of. I had no business running a summer yeah. camp. And by the way, I forgot to tell my parents about it. So all of a sudden, my mom starts forgot getting... Forgot or you purposely didn't want to tell your parents? No, I just... I, I, I don't know. I think I genuinely forgot. Yeah. It was the ADD. Um, and uh, my mom starts getting calls. She's like, hey, do you want to tell me about the summer camp that we're apparently holding in our backyard? <laughs> I was like, well, you told me I needed to get a summer job, so I just created one. And this camp ended up running for eight years. Wow. My two younger brothers ran it. At we, the house. At the house, yeah, in my parents' backyard. I mean, we had to, we had to pay uh, a little bit to the lawn care afterwards. You can imagine 50 kids running around the backyard. Yeah. Um, so... 
that's how I started. And then in college, um, I ended up uh, writing a business plan for a, a, a mobile app. Um, this was kind of right as the launch of the iPhone was coming. Uh, and so I'm dating myself a little bit. But 2008, uh, nine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a little bit sooner. 2007 is yeah, when the six, iPhone seven. came out. Yeah. Um, and so we, we ended up writing... Uh, this were you, application. Sorry, were you a bit like a business major in college? I was. Or? I was a finance major. Finance. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I decided I had this idea basically that fans wouldn't want to get up and leave the action in sports stadiums to go and get food and wait in line. And you know, I'd just grown up in that world, so it made so much sense to me. And now you have these apps that you could order food from and tickets. So we were the very first ones to ever do that and ended up selling that uh, technology to the 49ers. And of course, now at Levi Stadium, there's a whole host of applications that you can use. And I got to advise and, um, and help contribute to that project. So you, so you started this, or you, I guess you wrote the business plan in college. How long did you operate the company for after It's three that? years, okay. uh, which now seems so short. But at the time, it was like, I can't believe it's taking us this long to do anything. And that lasted throughout your, like, af- even post-college? Yeah. So I, I turned down a full-time job um, to basically go and pursue this with a couple of my friends. We ended up getting a small amount of uh, fundraising from the state because we, we made it to the semifinals of a statewide business mm-hmm. competition. And, uh, and then we raised some angel money uh, in that process. And, you know, it, I remember it was where I, I was working so hard. We were, you know, we were barely sleeping. We were like, yeah. you know, we'd be at the office and we knew that we needed to get more done. So we'd run around the hallways to kind of wake ourselves up and, uh, and just keep working. So I, I, I think I was just kind of born with this drive of, succeeding and accomplishing something and that was you know that was the first foray into I'm, it i'm curious though um if that kind of didn't pan out the way you wanted it to what Not would you have, what would you have done no i'm just saying if it didn't like i guess if it didn't like lead to an actual business and you wrote the business plan and for some reason you decided not to pursue it um as a finance major what was like the path that you were going to be on or yeah i think the alternative path was going and um and working at a consulting firm i had interned for a firm called monitor group in new york great firm now part of deloitte And, uh, and I had a very traditional path set out for me, you know, and especially in the Northeast, I feel like people are raised there to go into finance. This is just like what you think you're going to do. You know, you're going to work in private equity or, uh, and so here here too, sort of like I went to business school at USC in SoCal and like pretty much that's kind of the trajectory. I invest in banking or consulting. Exactly. (laughs) So that was just kind of like. All right, in consulting, you're going to work probably 70 hours a week. If you go the investment banking route, you probably work 80 to 100 hours a week. And um, and I don't know. I I I remember kind of doing the internships, and I realized if I went the banking route, I was going to work in Excel the entire time, and if I went the consulting route, I was going to work in PowerPoint the entire time. And I just remember thinking, is there a job out there that <laughs> uses more than one Microsoft Office? <laughs> sweet like that, yeah. if i could just find that i'd be happy yeah. and then you know that started writing this and i got so much excitement from it and people ask all the time like well how can you know how can i become an entrepreneur how i'm like honestly i don't think it's as much of like becoming an entrepreneur as much as like it's a curse as much as it's a blessing like i can't turn it off i i wish i could i wish i could stop thinking about these kinds of things sometimes um, but it's just kind of just part of who I am. Well, would you say, obviously, a lot of people know the the, the pros of being an entrepreneur and, and you know, being, you know, in a, in a sort of position to, I guess, create tremendous amount of wealth, uh, success, 
prosperity, all that kind of stuff. But I guess on the flip side, what would you say based on, I guess, your experience or what you've seen are like cons? Yeah, I think it's totally glamorized. I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of benefits, especially if you can succeed. You know, certainly there's a wealth creation standpoint. And then, um, you know, kind of being able to feel this feeling of success is great. But the failure rates in entrepreneurship are so enormously high it is a giant risk and i would say the i'd say the biggest downsides are that you know you really have a hard time not thinking about work um all the time when you're sleeping when you're you know with people that you care about you mentioned 80 hours in consulting invest this is like a 400 hour yeah a week. Like, you know, <laughs> if but, only there were that many I um i i i think it's I think that's the hard thing is like learning how to separate, separate it a little bit. And, you know, people talk a lot about work-life balance, but when you're an entrepreneur, in some cases, the work-life balance, like they just merge together. Like you're just mm -hmm. kind of sometimes working in your mind, even if you're, you know, on vacation. And uh, I think the other downside is, is that is, is just the risk standpoint. Like Talk about all your eggs in one basket. And there's some cool things that people have done recently to help mitigate some risks for entrepreneurs. But you are swinging for the fences. And if you strike out, uh, you know, you really strike out big time versus going a more traditional path. Nate, it seems like by your mid-20s, you had already sold that company. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, did, what was that feeling like? I mean, was it like, oh, man, like I made it? Or was it this is step one? Yeah, it, so I'm making it sound way better than it was. Well, make uh, it sound worse than it was. <laughs> okay, well, I, I don't know if that's possible. Let me try. So what happened is, is uh, so we had raised this capital, and as part of raising this capital, um, we ended up bringing in uh, a CEO from this event. I was, I think, I was 23, 24 at the time, and uh, and this group was like, "You're too young to be a CEO," and I was like, "Yep, you are right. I have no idea what I'm doing." So we ended up bringing in the CEO, and long story short, you know, the, it didn't pan out the way we all kind of thought it would, and we had to we had to find a buyer. You know, we had to find somebody to to sell it to, and um, and so while it was great that there was kind of this quote unquote exit, it was not a financial success. Right. I don't think our investors were like counting the multiples of return on it, and um, and I felt like gosh why did i how could i have possibly failed at this this seemed like this was this was destined for success and it took it you know it, it was a it was a hit to certainly my pride and ego um, which is probably an important one but i also realized at the time just what an incredible like business school i had just gone through you know just everything from hr to managing payroll to managing people to you know, building and selling into investors and getting people excited about a product. And, um, and that, without that experience, there's no way I could do what I'm doing today. Like, it yeah. just would not be possible. And I don't know if you could sort of shed light on what happened, but I guess what are the biggest lessons you learned, um, it, it, you know, kind of having this big vision and, and imagining it being a certain way and then not ending up ultimately being that? Yeah, so I think the, I think the biggest lesson that I learned is, uh, it sounds so stupid, but it's really true. Like, don't run out of money. And um, and that was, yeah, there are a lot of businesses that fail, not because the ideas are bad, not because, um, you know, they don't have talented teams, but because they simply run out of capital. 
and they haven't appropriately planned for it. So even though I was a finance major, I kind of put my head down and yeah. focused on executing on the sales plan yeah. of the business. And by the time you know, I really started, I started started understanding the unit economics of our business. It was it was too late, and um, and so I think as I as I built and started Roan, I wanted to make sure that we were financially stable, that we had um, a great base to build off of, and that we were going to you know we were always going to have sufficient capital to do what we wanted to. And and I guess how, what would you say how how does somebody learn that? How does somebody learn those skills before they start a business so they can I guess and obviously a lot of things come up you can't control and and you just never really know how things are going to turn out but is there some sort of framework or um resource or something that you're familiar with that you can kind of point to? Yeah, I mean certainly there's so many uh resources out there for entrepreneurs now today in terms of how you build a business plan, how you set up kind of your financials. I think the biggest thing that people always talk about uh, is how do you get access to capital? And people make assumptions all the time because of the success of my father and the notoriety of him that I never needed to worry about that. But I worried about it all the time. After my first business, I had racked up so much credit card debt. My wife and I had just had our first child, you know, from a financial situation. uh, I was, I was, I was not set up for long-term success. And I basically had to hustle my way out of that by um, going and picking up lots of odd jobs and consulting jobs. And so, you know, I think, I think the biggest thing is to be super conscious of it, like to not make assumptions about what I, I, I tell our team all the time, never start counting the dollars of, of long-term success. Like be present in the moment and think about how we accomplished today and this week and this year, and that's it. Don't go past that because entrepreneurs always start dreaming and thinking about yeah. what the exit Dream looks bit. like. Yeah, which is great. It's part of what drives you to, to start in the first place. But when that starts uh, kind of, I don't know, being about the dollars and cents, I think that's when you lose focus. And, uh, and for me, in my first business, I thought about the exit like every day, we're going to change the world. This is going to be so big, and you know it's going to have all this financial success. With Roan, I never think about the exit ever. I think about what we are accomplishing right now, what we're trying to achieve, and I think that's grounded me in a in a lot of ways um, that I you know that I didn't have. Nate, before we delve into the post business sale and you know getting into Roan and what you did, just out of just curiosity, it's a fun question. Is it finance or finance? <laughs> I I end up saying both, and I think when you say finance, it sounds so. Uh, it sounds very East Coast, yeah, finance the, like yeah, you know, just like upper class. Like, yeah, it's like very. Uh, I'm trying to think of an appropriate word that no, it's it's like arrogant. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. if I said finance, I apologize. Oh no, no, it's okay. No, uh, no I, it's just I find both things. words very funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. but it is true. Like I. Yeah. Like I work in finance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like it's <laughs> yeah, just yeah. yeah. It's like kind of French, yeah, but yeah. not. Yeah, yeah it's like yeah. finance. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so just want to kind it should of have be a finance, quick fun what transition. It's what there. it should be. Yeah. After you sold the company, did you know what was coming next? I mean, you said you had your first kid at that time. Um, I mean, what's going through your head? What's next? Are these ideas just kind of flowing, or are you more so like? Shit, like I don't know what I'm going to do now. It was <laughs> definitely more the latter. Yeah. Like I. Uh, I did. I've always had nonstop ideas. Like it's a, you know, yeah. my wife's been great. She's like, just start writing them down so you don't have to. Like, yeah, that's what of, I do now. It's yeah. just like, 
Yeah. And it's good. It's good to just kind of get them out. Um, but you realize really quickly that in business, what matters is execution. Like any idea that you could possibly have, there's a high degree of likelihood yeah. that somebody else has had it. And I, I, I always love it when people are like, I had that idea 10 years ago. I'm like, congratulations. Yeah, That's yeah I was great. thinking about that. You don't want to be that person. No, no, you, you, do, not, you do not want to be, because it's just, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and great ideas don't build great companies. Um, great companies are built from sweat and tears and just tons and tons and tons of hard work. And by the way, a lot of luck. Like, so, um, you know, by no means am I convincing myself that we've been successful simply because, you know, the idea or the category was right. I think we've made more good choices than we've made bad choices, but we've made a ton of mistakes. And, um, and we've been fortunate in so many cases, like some things have just gone our way. And uh, so I don't know. I don't even remember what question I'm answering. On the, on the topic, yeah. well, I guess on the topic of execution, I'm curious. Um, in your kind of experience or, or, or kind of what you've learned, um, what are the factors that take an idea from from zero to one? Like, w- there are a lot of ideas that people yeah. have, um, but you know, oftentimes we don't act on it because for some reason it's just maybe not strong enough or whatever sure. it might be. So I guess in in your case, like, what would you say those? I, I think the biggest I think the biggest step in getting an idea from zero to one is really just sitting down with paper and people are different so this is what works for me and flushing it out playing like red team against yourself asking telling your like trying to understand all the reasons why it wouldn't work and trying to come up with the solutions and and you know essentially think your way around the problem and then where most people get stuck is they're like well how do I raise money. If the first thing you're trying to do is raise money, you, you're not going to succeed because money doesn't ultimately solve the problem in and of itself. Like, for example, if you need money to go and buy and design a, a product, why don't you start by doing some market research just with a friend group or, or go to a store and say, if I were to make this, would you buy it? Um, and I think there's just so much that you can do before you have to worry about the capital question. Uh, and, and most entrepreneurs be like, well, but I don't know how to raise money or I don't have enough money to do this. And I just find that it's ultimately a big excuse. Right. Like if the idea is strong enough and there's a lot of people that want to be behind it and either purchase your product or partner with you or whatever it might be, then the money will come. Yeah. Right? Well, <laughs> and raising capital is hard. It's a, it's a grind. Like, yeah. you know, I can't even, I could not count how many people I spoke to as we were getting this off the ground. And, um, and fortunately, you know, I I had two co-founders who knew more wealthy people than I do, and they were help us to raise some initial capital. But um, but yeah, it's it's a math game. It's mm-hmm. like at a certain point, it's like any funnel that you have in marketing. If you're going to get one investor, maybe you need to talk to a thousand people to get a hundred meetings, to get ten second meetings, to get five third meetings, and one investor to come through. So, are you willing to do the work? to talk to 5,000 people to get five investors or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever your, and now as you get, as you get more experienced and as you get better at telling stories and as the business evolves, the funnel gets wider. So now maybe it only takes 10 meetings to get one investor or five meetings to get one investor. Um, I hear all the time, like a series D or E round, like for a lot of entrepreneurs or founders was way easier than the series A. No question. It's yeah. like not even, well, at that point, you're not, not even close. close. And they, story. Ra- they raised yeah. like 10 X the, the, the uh, value or the amount. Um, yeah. but it was just like, not even close. Yeah. Like it's way easier as a business starts getting momentum. Um, 
well, and obviously it's dependent on how the business is performing, but you know, a seed round is the hardest round to raise, I think for most people, because generally if you're raising a seed round, it means that it's your first company. Because if you've, you know, if you've had some if level you're Jeffrey of, Katzenberg and you're launching Quibi, right. then they're going to give you a billion you're funding, dollars. You're funding your own yeah. seed round, or <laughs> you have some level of success to draw upon and be like, right. this is what I've already accomplished in my life. Write me a check. Yeah. Right. So I guess going back to that question, what did you do after you sold that company? So I basically started consulting. and um, For yourself or for? For myself. I, uh, I basically, um, you know, in the process of trying to sell the business, I had met some interesting people and I called them and said, here's, you know, here's where I think I can be helpful and listed it out. I remember I had, I went down in our basement, which was just, you know, completely unfinished. Like it was this awful, dark, uh, damp place. And I just sat there and I like pages and pages of notes of what I was going to do to get myself out of this hole that I had got myself into. And part of it was just the same thing that I had done to raise capital was just call and talk to a lot of people, ask a lot of people for advice. And that ended up leading to three kind of consulting gigs. And one of the people that I started talking to um, was a guy over at the NFL who, um, who was very interested in the company that we had built. And he said, you know, you should come and interview for this position that we just opened up. So I went out there, I, um, I interviewed and I was offered uh, a role there and I basically came in to run the new business sponsorship strategy. Um, and that was an incredible experience, but I also quickly realized how not a corporate person I am, you know, going to the NFL every day, suit and tie was just like, where's their office? Uh, it's in midtown Manhattan. Got it. Yeah. So right on park Avenue. So you had moved from after college, you moved from Connecticut to New York. Uh, so, so I went to college in Utah. I started my first business in Utah and then we moved to New York Mm -hmm. to take that role, which was in many ways going back home for me. I also realized how much I love New York going back. Like I, you were married at the time already. Yeah. Yeah. Married, um, one child with another child on the way. Um, we got started early and, uh, and so, um, yeah, that was, that was a big transition for us. But while I was at the league, you know, I couldn't stop these entrepreneurial ideas just from coming in every day it was like you know i remember being on the train and writing down i want to run a company that matters i want to go build a company that matters and uh you know the nfl is an incredible place with really talented people in a league that that certainly matters the most successful uh, professional sports league arguably globally and um and they uh, and yet i was i was miserable and i couldn't figure out why and I think part of it was because I knew that even if I disappeared, you know, they wouldn't say this as much in a threatening way, as much as a joking way, but they'd be like, you know, whoever wants to leave, there's a stack of resumes this high of people who would love to replace you. Yeah. And, uh, and I, don't, I always hated that. When you say um, you wanted to build a company that matters, what did, what did that really mean to you? Yeah, so I, uh, the, the, sub, the subheading of that was, uh, you know, I knew I wasn't going to cure cancer. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it just meant building a building a I didn't have the words for it at the time that I do now but it was basically building a brand that could have an impact a positive impact on people and um and so the idea for Roan was not mine ironically you know as somebody who has a million kind of creative ideas flowing their through their head but what happened is, is I was given a gift um from my mom during uh Christmas of like these nice sweatpants from a well-known women's yoga brand and my brother-in-law was like, 
you can't wear those. Those are, you know, that's a women's yoga brand. And I was like, yeah, well, they're, these are nicer than the stuff I was getting for free from the NFL. And, uh, and so I go into work and Budweiser sends a box of the same brand to all the women in the office. They start opening it up, going through. And I was like, oh, I just got a pair of their sweatpants. And the guy next to me goes, oh, that's cool. Do you buy your underwear at Victoria's Secret? And I was <laughs> oh like, I was like, what? So okay. then I started, um, I started talking to my brother-in-law about it. And he was like, we should create a men's brand. Um, and, uh, and I was like, oh, that's, I don't know. That doesn't sound like that unique to me. But then we started doing the research. And what we found is that there were over 200 female-focused premium brands in the space. It was so cluttered. It was crazy. And the men's space was largely being dominated by all of these massive brands that we had grown up with. But there was nobody kind of in that premium space, call it 85% plus focused on men's, outside of these very specific um, kind of niche focused brands. Like, you know, you get like a Rafa and Cycling or like a triathlon brand. And we also thought that guys' closets were changing. So what people started, you know, you look around the room 10 years ago, maybe in LA, you, you could wear the type of stuff that we're all wearing but you know uh for the listener like nobody's wearing a dress shirt here it's like yeah. all kind of comfortable yeah, casual wearing stuff yoga pants yeah exactly yeah. so um so we saw we saw the everyday closet changing and we felt like there was a new category that was emerging and i hated the term athleisure i still think it's a misnomer for what mm-hmm. i want to build athleisure is stuff that's meant to look athletic but that you're never meant to work out in right. we kind of believe in this foundational uh term that everything should be performance driven that you could work out in whatever we make and so we call our category performance lifestyle so that you can you know even if we do make a dress shirt you want to go run a marathon in that? You could absolutely do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's meant to move and, and live with whatever your lifestyle is because life is a workout, you know, the yeah. way that we live today. For context, um, this was around 2013, 14? This is around 2013 that we start having these conversations. And are you still and, at the NFL this time? Or Yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah, I was in the process of kind of leaving at yeah. that point. Um, okay, you were, you, were, you were already going to leave. Yeah. yeah. You just didn't want to work on the idea there so that it doesn't become NFL's... Yeah, <laughs> intellectual property, yeah. 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 Um, um, but so, also, like, at this time, you mentioned you're married, you have two kids, like, that you were, like... I mean, what was going through your head as far as you're, you're going out there, you're taking this huge risk again? Um, I was scared. at all? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was really, really scared. Um, the, uh, the thought of you know, failing again was just like daunting. It like weighed on me. And especially now with like a wife, two kids, like you, I mean, there's, you can't fail. No, that's it. And in some ways I think that actually helped. Like it's like, you know, the burn the boats Mm -hmm. philosophy of, uh, there was no going back. And so if we were going to do this, we had, we had to be successful, but I was also, I, I did things, um, and starting the company that I didn't do in my first company, just in terms of making sure that there was a, a stable base. I went out and raised capital and had capital commitments mm-hmm. before really going and, and leaving a full-time job. Mm-hmm. What convinced you to finally do it? Because you said that early on you weren't really convinced. You did the research and whatever, but what really kind of got you to the point of like, all right, let's do this. Like, there's no, there's no going back. thousand yeah. percent, I'm in it. Let's do it. What got me excited about it you know, I had these two co-founders who were working on it, you know, originally more so than I was. And, um, and we just started talking about, you know, kind of what, what would make us differentiated in the space. And we had some unique um, 
fabric innovations that we were working on, some unique approaches to fit. You know, we're the only company in the world that uses Gold Fusion, which is the, a non-toxic proprietary approach to anti-odor. Um, but, you know, still, like, what was going to be our approach? And then I just started kind of looking and picking my head up around me and thinking about the fact that, you know, maybe for the first time in human history, men were really at a crossroads in terms of kind of and having an, a bit of an identity crisis. You know, we grew up in this generation of bring your daughter to work day, um, you know, female empowerment, gender equality, all things that are really, really positive and good. Um, and I foundationally believe in gender equality. But then I looked at my two sons being raised in the similar environment. And now all of these negative stories about toxic masculinity, you know, stories like Harvey Weinstein and others. And I realized, how are we going to counterbalance this approach? Help them understand, here's all, the, here's all the terrible things that men have done in the past and that you need to be aware of and you need to protect yourself against. But here are examples of good men doing great things, living great lives. And so you understand not just what not to be, but what you can be. And I got so energized about that idea that we could build a performance brand that wasn't about running faster, lifting more weights, you know, breaking kind of PR, so to speak, but that it was about building a brand for your life. Because the fact is that even as most of us increase in health and wellness, we're doing it to have a better lifestyle, not to, you know, win on the basketball court or on the ice hockey rink. And so that deeply resonated with me and kind of approaching men's wellness on a foundational level. And, uh, and so that's been a part of our ethos from the very beginning. And that got me excited. It really linked me back to this idea of creating a brand that matters. And I was like, this is cool. And, and that's yeah. when I got excited about it. And was it from day one that you wanted it, <clears throat> like actually the materials to be uh, like different and all that? Or was it um, something that came along like as, like was the initial idea just, hey, there's a gap in the, you know, men's activewear lifestyle, you know, category. Let's build a brand for that. And then everything else will kind of follow. Yeah, I, I think I, and I do believe this, you can make anything like with manufacturing today, if you yeah. decide, hey, I want to, I want to make something that is, you know, like this product or of this quality. If you work hard enough and you, you know, you are persuasive enough to a manufacturer, like you can make anything. The hard part is, can you sell it? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, initially our product designs, I thought were pretty unique and novel. Like we were one of the very first ever to put media pockets in our, in our clothing. Now you see it all the time. Um, you know, when we first launched, we had put like, you know, the uh, the um, headphone cord yeah. outlets like through. Like we had all this unique approaches to stuff that's become much more mainstream. Um, but what we've done really, really well at over the last five years is developing some proprietary approaches to fabric innovation and bringing things to the market. And we're able to see stuff that these big players see as well, but we're just much more nimble in our supply chain so we can bring it faster to market. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that has taken that, time to develop. Yeah. And was that all that innovation, was that based on feedback you got from the market, from customers, or was it something that you as a, in, in your team felt you know you had to do to be competitive to to be a leader in the space it was definitely i mean it was both but really like i just wasn't interested in building stuff that already existed yeah right like i i i think this idea of being better and challenging ourselves to be the best in a category um is 
is so important, especially when you're, you know, when you're getting out there. If somebody is choosing between buying Roan and buying another brand, if we can't foundationally prove that our product is better, then we don't, we don't have a reason to exist, right? Like there, we, our reason to exist needs to be that we need to be the best in the category that we're operating in, in order to take market share. Our business only succeeds if we are increasing, increasingly taking market share every single day. And you mentioned, you know, obviously producing and manufacturing is simpler, but selling is really the challenge. Yep. How do you get that message that you just described to us about that performance lifestyle brand and, you know, men's wellness? How do you get that message across? I mean, is that what you're selling or is the clothing what you're selling? I mean, what as a consumer here, yeah. what am I buying into? Yeah, well, I think it's both. I mean, men are very sticky uh customers in general if you find you know the research shows that when men find something that they like they tend yeah. to go back to it right and we, we see don't this, like a lot of change we're just like this yeah works. Like, yeah this works yeah. just just order more of it mm-hmm. um and we see this we see this shopping pattern on our site today when we um if if we can identify that it's a female customer generally there will be a much broader array of purchases and when a guy when a first time uh male customer comes and buys he will buy one thing and right. then he comes back and he buys the same thing in multiple colors. Wait, uh, do you also <laughs> do you also have female um, like uh, clothes? No, we clothing? don't. We don't make oh. any women's so clothing. Females so buying, females for, buying for, fe- for men. Females yeah. buying yeah. for men, and so it's just it. Uh, I mean, presumably they they may be buying for themselves, but um, but I think that's I, I think it's just so interesting. So we knew that if we could get into guys' closets, that we would have this idea of you know as long as the clothing was great. We'd have this propensity to repurchase, mm-hmm. and um, and so we've evolved in being able to tell and craft the story. One of the things that I'm most proud of is, you know, really one of my first hires was my youngest brother Ben, uh, and he's just a great storyteller. He was an English major, um, and you know the stuff that he's been able to do, and kind of he writes our everything from our email copy to runs our social media content. Um, we'd launched this uh, ad over the holidays um, uh, to a Robert Frost poem about you know the importance of keeping promises, and he he wrote and directed that, and so kind of his evolution of creative storytelling has really been able to help us tell our own brand story, mm-hmm. um, and learning how to how to do that through you know podcasts and PR mm-hmm. and um, and social media like that has that's been an evolution. We've learned that. But in terms of what you're buying as a customer, if you're not buying the best workout shirt or best pair of work pants, we don't have a business to tell you the mm-hmm. second story. Mm-hmm. So I view great product as table stakes, and I really believe that we are a product company first. In terms of the actual product, tell us a little bit about what Roan is, what the offerings are, where people can find you, and why you decided to, you know, let's say go the e-commerce route and, you know, sell directly to the consumer. Yeah. So, um, you know, Roan is a performance lifestyle brand for men made to fill about 80% of your closet. So we're never going to do formal. Well, maybe I shouldn't say never, but today we don't do anything formal. You know, your, your, uh, tuxedo wedding attire generally. Um, maybe and you do like a collab with Tom Ford. Yeah, <laughs> That'd be cool. that would be cool. Tom Rowan. Um, 
And, uh, but what we do is we make everything from kind of gym training product to, uh, what you can wear to work. We are really known for our commuter line. Um, so we make these great pants called the commuter pants that come in multiple styles, multiple fits. We launched a dress shirt that has sold out five times since we launched it made out of unbelievable Italian fabric, um, that has wrinkle release. So as you wear it, your own body's heat actually releases the wrinkles and it's the most comfortable dress shirt you've ever worn. It's, I, it's so crazy. And we tried every dresser on the market before we launched this. Um, but, you know, we're really well known for kind of uh, our active wear as well. So what you can wear to the gym. And um, it's very subtle logo placement. So we don't believe that men like being walking billboards for brands. Mm-hmm. So um, tasteful colors uh, inspired by nature. We don't use a lot of neons or bright colors. It's very, very kind yeah. of inspired earthy. by earth. I love that. Tones. And also on that logo topic, um, uh, it's something that like, you know, I, I guess it's a thing where you don't want to wear like six different athlete, a, a, a active wear brands at the same time. Like, yeah. you know, a, a Nike shirt with Adidas shorts with Under Armour shoes or whatever, whatever it might well, be. Well, especially when the logos are so prominent because it looks kind of sloppy, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think there's this idea of kind of bringing a sophistication to it. I had a guy tell me the other day, he's like, you've really improved my sideline game. I was like, <laughs> I was like what, what do you mean? He's like, I coach my daughter's soccer team. And uh, he's like, I'm by far the best dressed looking guy on the sidelines. And um, I'm sure his wife's very happy. About yeah, that. I believe he's clearly very yeah, happy yeah, about it. Yeah. Um, so I think there's this idea of kind of bringing men are more comfortable uh, leaning into style and fashion than ever before. Yeah. Um, I love that so much of that stigma that used to exist has started to fade away and they care about it. Like there was always this belief that men don't like to shop and that's just patently false. It's just, they just I think they spend as much time shopping. Yeah, well, I think it's, I, yeah, it's like they just shop differently. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm, this is a generalization, so I'm not trying to, not mm-hmm. trying to offend anyone here, but I know that for my wife and my sisters and my mom growing up, the idea of going and walking around a mall was like exciting. To me, I could not think of anything worse yeah. than walking around a mall shopping. One thing that's challenging though, and I think it's challenging for me, but I've also heard from people around me and just even online, um, is like for men especially, um, I, for women too, but I guess in the active wear space, um, like the whole fit of a, of, yep. a, of an item, um, you, you don't really know. And like, I think with you know, with the gym and, you know, being in the gym, you want it to look good and feel good while you're working out. So it's one of those things where it's like, there's, there's all these brands, but you don't really know which one's going to be the best one for you. Totally. I'm laughing because Pat got this one brand one time and he's like, I'm going to model for you. And I was like, all right, let's see it. it I'm not going to name the brand, but, but it was just a disaster. Pat's like a fit dude. It it did not fit me well. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It's tricky. And I think we, you know, the other hard thing about as you're starting is you can't fit if you try and fit every body type that yeah. exists, like you're not going to fit anyone really, really well. Right. So, you know, we've been very fortunate that we have some physical locations too. So we're now Equinox's number one men's mm-hmm. brand. We're Peloton's number one men's brand. Um, and, uh, and they have are a lot of physical- Are you in their stores? We are. Got so it. we have a lot of physical presence yeah. that way for people to try on product. We have four of our own stores mm-hmm. uh, that um, they're all, you know, kind of, close to the greater New York area, but we plan to open more because this exact reason. Once people get in the store and they try it on, the propensity to purchase is like 85%. Once people just touch the fabric and put it on, um, but you do, you want to make sure, and fit is also really personal. So we could tell you, here's the general dimensions of what is going to fit you, but some people like 
looser fitting clothing. Some people like tighter fitting clothing. Some people want the arms to be a little bit tighter. Mm -hmm. And until we're 3D printing everything, we can't solve for custom the right way. Well, if you have anything that has tight arms and longer, uh, I call it it. on the back, let me know because I'm I'm, I'm Really, really narrow hips, (laughs) big shoulders, tight arms. We know what Pat Pat In terms of difference between e-commerce and the retail strategy what have you found to be you know a challenge on the e-commerce side and then on the retail side of stuff and you know do you recommend brands that you know are starting off to go both ways to stick to one then launch another i mean just your general thoughts i suppose yeah i mean we could do an entire podcast on that one question so i'll try and i'll try and condense it but basically the the challenges online are fit like that's what you know so you're just trying to make sure that you can articulate and educate the customer about how special the fabric is we have people come to the store all the time and once they touch the fabric like i wish i had known it was this great (laughs) like we tried to tell you but there's so much falsity on on e-com and like people are getting instagram duped daily because they buy something thinking it's going to be good and the quality is just not we like building long-term relationships with our customers so um, but retail is a very, very different business. So you have to have different people running that channel than you do run your e-com channel. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I could spend yeah, yeah, hours. Hopefully we can do a part two uh, soon and, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. But thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation. Just learning about your story. It's incredible what you've built and uh, can't wait to see where it goes from here. All right. Thanks, thanks guys. Nate.